So this morning I want to speak about this third dimension, this third way of establishing mindfulness. And the Pali word is chitta. It's translated in different ways, sometimes as mind, but I think it refers more specifically to mood or mental state. Now, there's a a distinction, I think, that's important to make because, you know, the the question arises with some frequency about, you know, what about emotion? Now, mood or mental state, in my understanding, is not exactly the same as emotion. My esteemed colleagues may disagree with me and take me to account later, but in my understanding, there is a distinction. There isn't actually a word in Pali for emotion, which is quite odd, isn't it? So then you think, well, you know, 2,500 years ago, did people walk around like without emotions, you know, or, you know, how did they function? And then we contrast that with the kind of incredibly weighty place that emotion plays in our own experience and certainly in our culture where emotion is often given almost being uh, seen as being the most credible pilot of experience you know what I feel about something is almost more has more authority than anything else um you know or you know we have a lot of expressions you know like listen to your heart listen to, you know listen to your emotions all this I think there is a one strange kind of obscure word in Polly. one of these gentlemen probably know it and something you might feel when you visit the Buddha's birthplace Uh, It's kind of obscure, you know, seeing if that's going to be your only emotional moment in your life, you know, that. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) I'll go there, you know. Now, why is it so? Why do we not have this very specific word for emotion? Because emotion, certainly from the perspective of Buddhist psychology, is a construction of many pieces. mood is implicated the body is implicated thought is often implicated association and perception are implicated and they come together in a particular form which we put a label on and say that is anger or that is sadness or that is uh, jealousy so from the perspective of this practice uh, if we were to learn to be mindful within emotion, it would also be a process of unpacking a little bit, unpacking and beginning to sense these different threads, you know, how they come together into this, what often feels like a kind of final destination of, of anger or, or, or fear, to start to look at the body, to start to look at how perception is working. So from the perspective of this practice, we would be approaching emotion as an investigation. To unpack it, we would begin to sense everything that's involved. Now, one of the big things that's involved, of course, in emotional constructs is mood. Is mood, our, our mental state of the moment. And this is an incredibly significant landscape to learn to to get a feel for and to become familiar with. 
if you just were to take a moment right now, each one of us in this room has a state of mind, has a mood. Might be spacious, might be contracted, might be aversive, might be agitated, might be calm. But each one of us does have a mood in this moment. Now that mood is actually probably going to have a pretty major effect on how you approach this sitting, how you approach your day. If it's unexamined, that mood will probably be the sort of forerunner of your actions and your choices today, your, your sense of possibility, your sense of an impossibility. So moods are, are kind of like weather patterns, aren't they? Some of them, they, you know, they change so rapidly in a day. You know, we can be so, such, such a miserable mental state, you know. And then we see the, the chipmunk hopping across the lawn, you know. <laughs> you feel the mental state just change, you know. And then you go for a walk and you see the chipmunk squashed on the road. And, oh. you just feel that you know it's sorry but you just you just feel that don't you that the kind of the rise of the mood the lowering of the mood you know the contracting of the mental state the widening of the mental state you know and there's so many things that influence that aren't there what sensations are happening in the body can profoundly affect the mood you know, you, you have a pain and arise, and you can feel the mood rising with the pain almost. You know, you hear the loveliness of a bird singing, and you feel the mood changing. You have a thought that comes, you know, maybe a difficult memory or a difficult image, and you can feel the mood arising with the thought. You know, you might do a meta practice and you feel the mood change with the thoughts, with the intention. So there's so many factors influencing our moods, you know, and probably we often feel that it's kind of out of our control, but actually, of course, that's not this teaching, you know, um, that it's out of our control. But it is important to really recognize the centrality of our mental states and our experience because many of the moods we, we do experience are quite lovely, they're quite uplifting, they're quite ennobling, they're quite connecting. And many of them, as we know, are really quite difficult. Some of them are changed very rap rapidly and then you might almost find that you have a certain expertise in some moods. You know, that they are very familiar visitors and that they tend to have particular familiar outcomes. But it's to recognize how we perceive the world through our moods. That's the lens through which we perceive the world, you know. We interpret the world through our moods and we react to the world inwardly and outwardly on the basis of those interpretations. This is happening repeatedly through our day. You know, you, you walk, go in the dining room, you know, and someone smiles at you, oh, the mood, is, you know, this fantastic group of people, you know, really happy to be here with you all, you know. And, and then, you know, you go in the dining room and someone you, inter you see someone, you interpret them as giving you a rather bleak look, you know, what have I done wrong now? 
uh, you know, and a miserable group of people, so judgmental. Uh, you know, and then you just feel, high, uh, you know, I'm never coming here again. You know, that's it. You know, uh, so you you just feel this how this is kind of shaping, don't you? Moment to moment, day by day. I mean, look when you start to move, how your mood is often moving you. Hmm? How your mood is moving you, one way or another. So, the Buddha really placed a tremendous emphasis upon this. What is one point I would say is really useful to notice is that in the more difficult mental states, the unhelpful mental states, there is more story. There is more proliferation. The more wholesome, the more helpful mental states tend to be far less productive. Also, to be aware that the story is actually carrying the flavor of the mood. You know, so if I'm feeling irritated, you know, I look at the world and I don't see all that as well. I see everything that annoys me and I will build on it and build on it and build on it. I will be a prolific note writer. I will be fixing this place. It'll be my job of the lifetime. I'm going to fix this place. I won't fix that person. I won't fix myself. But you really see how the story is always carrying the mood. It's articulating the mood. The the story becomes the, the way that we talk about the mood to ourselves and to the world. And the stories are much bigger. You notice when there's much more helpful, really lovely states of mind, the story is really quite small, isn't it? I don't, you know, if it's a lot of calmness, spaciousness, I don't ruminate about, you know, what did I do to get spaciousness, you know. (laughs) Wonder if I deserve it, you know, it shouldn't be happening, wonder what's wrong, you know. We we don't do that, do we? It's almost like the loveliness of those mind states really are non-productive or very little productive. Often when they are productive, the productivity is quite useful in terms of reflection. So it's actually really knowing that, you know. So sometimes if you do find yourself, you know, really caught in some major narrative event, it's quite useful to kind of step back and say, well, what's, what's the mind state? What's the mind state underneath this? And how do I feel that? How do I know it? How do I know it through, you know, there's a lot of clues, aren't there? What is the mind state underneath that? Can I come back to that with a sense of investigation and curiosity? Because what we do see is that moods tend to be, you know, and Vedana is very implicated in moods, isn't it? You know, an unpleasant Vedana tone, in a thought or a sound or a body sensation, very, very implicated in mood, often the trigger for a mood to arise. So what we do see is these kind of closed feedback loops that get set up, that there's a state of mind. And, you know, you wake up in the morning with one, don't you? You know, I mean, just, you you know, you hear the wake-up bell, and how do you hear that? Oh, no, you know. Or, or, oh, great, you know. But but you really see the closed feedback loops, you know, because the mood is going to produce the the thoughts in line with it. The, The dwelling upon the thoughts is going to reinforce and strengthen the mood. As the mood gets strengthened and reinforced, it's going to produce more thinking. And so there's this closed feedback loop that gets set up where where thought and mood are interacting in this incredibly unhelpful way to cause this kind of contractedness and spiraling into 
you know, a state where you sometimes then feel quite lost in. And in that closed feedback loop, of course, something else comes into view, which is self-view. If you go around those loops enough time, you know, we start to come to the conclusion, don't we, that, oh, I'm, I'm like this, this is how I am, you know, I'm, I'm an anxious person, you know, or I'm a really an aversive person, or I'm a really angry person. So the self-view is coming in, and of course, that closed feedback loop is getting tighter and tighter, smaller and smaller, you know, until it feels as if it has filled our entire reality. It's very, very useful to notice this process, you know, to begin to unpack experience in this kindly, curious way of what is actually going on here. What is actually going on here? Now, there's a lot of, a number of different ways of beginning to do that. And the first one, of course, means developing this kind of what I call a sort of inner literacy you know, to, to know the mood at the moment, to, to know that element of sati, you know, to, to know the mind state of the moment. Ah, this is contractedness. Ah, you know, this is aversion. Ah, this is irritation. Ah, not I am, notice that. The same instruction in this, this way of establishing mindfulness carries right through all the, all the teachings, you know, to, to know a mental state as a mental state. A mood is a mood, and not as I am. So developing that kind of literacy inwardly. Ah, sadness is happening. Contractedness is happening. Ah, agitation is happening. There's no I am in there. It's a simple knowing. Now, there's also a discerning quality that comes in here. You know, and we really need to, I think, give a little muscle to this discerning quality. I think people are so afraid of being judgmental that they tend to push discernment out through the cat flap, you know, as if it doesn't have any place in this practice. Of course it does. So we learn to discern not good and bad moods, not right and wrong moods, but we certainly learn to discern what is helpful and what is unhelpful, what is skillful and what is unskillful, what leads to further distress and what leads to the end of distress in this aspect, powerful aspect of our experience. These are important questions because these, that discernment is actually the basis of skillful effort, of how we're going to engage with that mental state, how we're going to engage with that mood. It's that kind of discernment which is necessary in the whole of our lives, the way that sati is going to engage with skillful effort, not just watching. Because we're going to cultivate, and hopefully going to cultivate, the skillful and the helpful. And we're going to learn not to throw too many logs on the fire of the unhelpful. You know, through thought. So that discernment, is, is, is this a simple question to sit with, isn't it? Is this helpful or is it unhelpful? Is this skillful or unskillful? Yeah. It's not like we've never been here before, by the way. You know, generally speaking, our moods don't really surprise us. We know what is helpful and unhelpful based on our life experience, and there's something to be learned from that and applied to the present. We learn to also pick up the clues of moods, sometimes they're very, very often present in our body. You know, the body of contractedness, the body of agitation. There's very often a very strong behavioral aspect to moods. 
and particularly outside of the hall, you'll notice the behavioural aspect of mood. You know, if you do find yourself reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher, it is a clue. <laughs> it is a clue. Something is going on here, right? So there's, you know, we pick up the clues in, in our behavioral aspects. We pick up the clues in the body. Very powerful messenger of those clues, you know. The body, uh, the body of, of sadness, the body of agitation, the body of peace, the body of calm, the body of spaciousness. We start to, to pick up those clues in the body. We very much pick up the clues in our thought patterns. You know, if you've had more than two thoughts carrying the same mood tone, you know, two impatient thoughts, two aversive thoughts. This is really getting down here, by the way. You know, if you've got two irritated thoughts in a row, two anxious thoughts in a row, be alert. Be alert. There's a mood going on. You know, there's a mood underneath this. You don't need it. You know, you don't need ten thousand to tell you. <laughs> Two or three is quiet enough. You know, if I've had three complaining thoughts in a row, you know, or three kind of thoughts, you know, I know there's a mood going on. Hmm? Look underneath it. Start to pick up the clues. Question for yourself what is being practiced in this moment, knowing we're always practicing something. And very often, if there's not a lot of mindfulness and not a lot of sensitivity, what we're actually practicing in our day is our mood. You know? I'll learn how to practice this mood. You know? I'll act in a line with it, I'll dwell upon it, I'll feed it with thought. I'll learn how to practice this mood, being aware of what we are feeding, what we are practicing. It's really being aware of how much of this practice is really directed towards cultivating the lovely within consciousness, within chitta, how much we cultivate, you know, the qualities of calm, the qualities of kindness, of spaciousness, as this is not a dismissal of the difficult moods, but is to know that the difficult moods are not necessarily solved through wrestling with them, ruminating on them, trying to figure them out. But again, the cultivation of the lovely is what allows those moods to be seen, to be known, and not to be governed by. You know, again, this is a repeated refrain in the Satipatthana. To abide in the body, independent, not clinging to anything in this world, in this world of experience within the world of chitta, to learn what it means to abide independent, not clinging to anything. When there is not clinging, there is not governed by, and it's developing this quality of of actually freedom within the spectrum of our mental states and moods, rather than being governed by, and we know what that feels like to be governed by a mood. We know what it feels like. And we're learning that there's another way, there's another pathway that we can bring investigation. And again, this is not necessarily a project for the day. This is not something to add to your checklist, you know, to do. 
Um, but it, it's an intention to hold in the background of your experience. And sometimes it's really useful to pause at the beginning of a sitting, at the end of a sitting, the beginning of a walking, the end of a walking. Ah, what is my mental state just now? What is the mood of the moment? Just to be able to pause and ju just to get, begin to get that felt sense of it. Again, we're not moving on from the body. But again, in these moments of departure and the moments of being with the body, we're actually looking at this qualitative tone of the mindfulness that is brought. Because, you know, mindfulness too is often influenced, isn't it, by moods. Hmm? Takes on a kind of qualitative tone that's not part of mindfulness itself, but is added to mindfulness. So we're sensing that both in the sittings and outside of the sittings. Okay, thank you. So let's sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.